From the vocoder choir on the Clockwork Orange soundtrack to the robotic dance moves of the Jackson 5 to Beyonce's Cyberglove in the Single Ladies video, robotic voices and visuals have had a hold on pop music basically since its inception. The more I started thinking about the Single Ladies video and the whole autotune phenomenon, I was noticing that for young people around that time, around 2000, life became really half-lived in a cyborgian space. In this episode, I'll speak with author Ann Powers on the many ways artists use cyborgian gestures to question what makes a human being in the first place, especially when it comes to sex and gender. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. The act of recording a voice and playing it back is already something of an uncanny, robotic gesture since you're making a machine sound convincingly like a human. Later on in recording history, technologies like TalkBox and Vocoder started to synthesize the voice into an uncanny half-human, half-machine hybrid, making the sound of robots even more explicit. Like a lot of technology used in music reproduction, the vocoder was first developed for military purposes to transmit speech efficiently. Some military officials who tried using it for its intended purpose actually rejected it. They said it made their voices sound too feminine. In the 1970s, artists like Wendy Carlos and Kraftwerk began using the vocoder to tease out futuristic singing voices. Kraftwerk, an early electronic music group from Germany, specifically used vocoder alongside images of themselves as robots. By becoming robots, Kraftwerk were, in a sense, reining in their masculinity. A robot might look like a man, but because it can only do what it's programmed to do, it's not completely a man. Kraftwerk's deficient masculinity in the robot's video creates a fascinating and comic friction around the gender they're supposed to have and the gender they, as automatons, actually perform. Inspired by the machinic rhythms of songs by American R&B artists like James Brown, Kraftwerk in turn influenced the evolution of hip-hop and techno in the United States. Their machine-programmed beats formed the backbone of electro-buggy songs like Planet Rock by African Bombada and the Soul Sodunk Force, which also used metallic cyborg vocals to sound out new identities. Cyborg imagery and sound in music really started to ramp up toward the end of the 90s, when the internet became commonplace enough for major record labels to figure it into their promotional strategies. From Britney to Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Charlie XCX, and Janelle Monet, robot, android, and cyborg imagery has helped millennial pop artists make sense of our digitized cultural landscape. It's also proved to be a fruitful field for scoping out questions of power and labor under capitalism, including along gendered and sexual dimensions. All right, so with me today to discuss the history of androids and cyborgs and music is Ann Powers, the author of Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music, and is also NPR's music critic and correspondent and the co-founder of Turning the Tables, an NPR music series that seeks to recenter marginalized voices in music. And thank you so much for joining me today. 
I'm so thrilled by this whole project, Sasha, and I'm honored to be on your show. <laughs> awesome. So I wanted to start by asking you about the last chapter in your book, Good Booty. It's called Hungry Cyborgs, and it's it tracks a period of time from right before the turn of the millennium to about 2016, and... It moves through Britney Spears and Sync, Beyonce, kind of like all these major pop players who, after, you know, that advent of digitization in music and also kind of like in cultural life as a whole, like started using these arguably cyborgian techniques. When you were conceiving this chapter, what really drew you to the figure of of the cyborg as like the focal point of talking about music during this time period? You know, there was a specific thing. I was doing a little Dr. Google style research on the internet and and I found this piece of fan art that was Britney's face, Britney Spears' face, half of it ripped away or pulled away so you could see the cyborgian metal skeleton within. And Brittany as cyborg just became kind of a mantra or a phrase that haunted me. And I had to like figure out how that connected to the bigger picture. And then the more I started thinking about the single ladies video and, and also T-Pain and the whole auto-tune phenomenon. And then I was noticing, as any person would, that for young people, teenagers specifically, around that time, around 2000, life became really half-lived in a cyborgian space in a way. So it all added up. My adolescence was also spent very much on the internet, which is why I think this question about cyborgs and robots in music is like so fascinating because it was so present for me, but I didn't really realize like what was going on until like much later and I'm still thinking through it. So I want to like take it back a little bit because robots in, and especially like sexual robots in like pop culture, maybe a hundred years old at this point. Like I'm thinking specifically of Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, that like famous like dance scene where like the the fembot threatens to bring about the downfall of humankind by being too hot. <laughs> right. And I think in pop culture, robots tend to be either excessively sexual if they're female, right? Like the fembot, the gynoid, like there's instance after instance of that kind of archetype. Or they seem to be deficient in sexuality if they're male, like C-3PO is like a very gay-coded, not right. especially masculine robot. Right. And, and both examples of like, quote unquote, wrong sexuality in like a heteropatriarchal system. Do you think that that polarization is, is part of what makes them ripe for use in pop music sexual scripts? One question we can ask ourselves is, is a robot a sex toy? Or what is the connection between the robot and sex toys. So first, does a robot have any kind of affect at all? And are we projecting that affect or programming that affect into the robot? And obviously, the science fiction dystopias you're talking about, there's a sense of loss of control over the robot, which is always such a huge fear. And I think there are some examples in pop music where the kind of dichotomy you're presenting is troubled. For example, Grace Jones, like, is she hypersexual or asexual? She is certainly powerful, but like, is that power withholding or aggressive? I think the, the dichotomy you're presenting is interesting because one thing robots offer is a narrative of learning about how to be human. And, you know, 
everyone's favorite cyborg, Data, from Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of what Data does, right, is learn, including learning how to be sexual. So I would propose this kind of like third path, which would be the robot can learn and can expose us to um, how constructed desire is and how constructed our, even our ways of communicating are. Anne points out an important moment in the depiction of androids in popular culture. Star Trek The Next Generation aired from 1987 to 1994, meaning it helped midwife the very first days of dial-up modems and home internet connectivity. Its companion series, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, ran from 1993 to 1999. Both shows used the technology of the era to trace an image of the far future and explore questions of morality as they pertain to interactions between human and non-human entities including robots, androids, and cyborgs. Some of these electronic beings were innocent, some not so innocent, but they all spoke to the anxiety and wonder surrounding technology's increasing hold over everyday life. That mix of fear and awe filtered into music, too. Around the turn of the millennium, a roster of musicians took on robotic shapes to sound out a digital future. You had girl groups like TLC and Destiny's Child dancing like androids in sterile futuristic environments toward the end of the 90s, while the Backstreet Boys donned mech suits in space. One of the most telling images of the era comes from a Britney Spears photo shoot for teen people in 2000. Against a pixelated blue void, she holds an Ibo, a novelty robot dog made by Sony. While Spears isn't styled as a robot herself, the connection is clear enough. A teen pop star who had been conceived as a simulacra of a real musician since her inception, an infamous Rolling Stone cover story said she'd screamed off the production line onto the pop charts, finds kinship with a replica of a beloved family pet. So a lot of millennial pop around, you know, the rise of digitization, around the turn of the millennium, that was like really uncannily digitized, Mm -hmm. but... I think like even cyborgs like Destiny's Child and TLC who had like really amazing music videos where they're like in kind of this ambiguous cyberspace and like wearing, you know, cyberpunk outfits, they still held some claim to being real singers despite these artificial trappings, right? Like Beyonce's voice is like pretty undeniable, even when it's like multi-tracked and auto-tuned, it still kind of like registers to the ear as like a powerful, like skillful voice. Um, But I think... Britney Spears, when she, you know, her single comes out in 1998, starts to complicate that a little bit um, because her voice doesn't really map onto that, like, experience of hearing, like, a powerful original singer. There's something kind of, like, hyper-real about her voice where it doesn't really seem to have, like, an originating body in in a way. Yes. What is it about like the tone of her voice that like, you know, as it is like before all that, that that makes it like perfect for this kind of digital manipulation? She has that this light timbre, right? You know, and and now it's hard to hear how um, revolutionary that felt when she came out. And I don't know if anyone (laughs) would would have said it was revolutionary. Mostly people would have said it was bad. You know, she didn't have a good voice. Britney didn't seem to have any uh, any interest in or perhaps capability to sing in a kind of classic, melismatic, you know, big voice, show-off-y pop star way. You know, there was never going to be an I will always love you 
from Brittany. But what she did have was a really strong work ethic and a really strong impulse to kind of collaborate well with whoever she was in the studio with. And so when she partners with Max Martin, who's the pioneer of that, the 21st century style of Scandinavian pop, inspired by ABBA, in which uh, two women's voices were also kind of like flat and affectless and, and, you know, supposedly not good voices. But he's got all these new tools, right? So now we have all these new tools, com- you know, synthesizers, beyond synthesizers, computer programs, etc. And I wasn't there, but when I imagine being a fly on the wall in the studio with this teenage girl and this dude, I think he was like, just like, try this, try that, you know, sing in this way. And she just could do it, you know, she could become part of the wash of electronic sounds. It's interesting that Brittany, the other kind of in-betweenness of Brittany, besides am I human or not, is not a girl, not yet a woman, right? Mm-hmm. So there's another way where her girlishness, the girlishness of her voice feels uncanny. There's something to that in-betweenness and the human cyborg in-betweenness that, especially in her early music, really pinged off each other, those two different things. There's some demos you can find on YouTube of like really early cuts of Baby One More Time and her voice sounds a little bit more open on those mm. and not quite as girlish. And I, uh, you know, yeah. like again, wasn't wasn't there, but I can kind of speculate that maybe Max Martin like heard that initial take and was like, can you make it sound more childlike or like kind of clamp down a little bit, make it a little squeakier because that sounds better with like the processing that we're going to do. And then also a lot, a lot of the most iconic millennial pop cyborgs were, were teens or like at least styled as teens, like maybe early twenties, like Backstreet Boys and Sync. They were, they were young people. Do, Do you think that there's an inherent connection between roboticism and youthfulness? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, if you think about what was happening with teen pop and the extreme commodification of these young people, and then even in the early 2000s, because kids are already on the internet, uh, the the seeds of what now have now become like, you know, this 100% performative culture for everyone, right? Where we're all filtering ourselves and we're all editing ourselves and we're all, we're all performers. So I do think there's a shift toward that sense of like constant performance, which is always part of femininity, of course, mm-hmm. and in a more stealth way, masculinity as well. But I don't know, it becomes so extreme in the 21st century. And I feel like that, that is what's starting to bubble under in the early 2000s. All that said, I think the just like the pervasiveness of artifice in young people's lives in the 21st century and the way that the artificial body becomes the norm we could talk about the kardashians means that this inevitably becomes the kind of parlance of pop i i think you're totally right that there's a connection between like pygmalion and like wind up toys and you know wind up ballerinas and these kind of like cyborg figures it seems like those kind of constructed bodies pre-digitality are like largely feminine though right Mm -hmm. well you know yes and no i i think i think again the 
mainstream discourse, mainstream culture tends to focus in a paranoid way on how women's bodies change or don't change, right? Sure. So boys, for example, teenage boys, I found in doing some research about like what was happening with the changing teenage body at the in this period, boys were taking steroids to bulk up at a new massive rate. Mm-hmm. They're looking to these athletes who, you know, were later discovered as doping up a lot. You know, the stakes changed during this period. For sure. I mean, this, you know, this leads to the Kardashians, right? The celebrities are starting to present uh, proudly as partially artificial. Yeah, totally. There's this kind of sub-narrative of being empowered and like in charge of your own modifications and like artificial embodiments. So I want to I want to move into the the single ladies video mm-hmm. for a minute. This is a video you call out in in your book. Yeah. For for a couple reasons, right? It has this dance that, you know, is is mimicking J setting, which is like a, a club kid dance that is also like very mimicable, right? right. Like and it's yes. like in the age of YouTube and it, it kind of like has this viral effect where people are uploading like their own takes on it. So that kind of has this army of robots yes. feel to it. Yes. Um, yes. both within and without the video. But there's also like the closing image of the video mm-hmm. where like Beyonce stops dancing. She holds up her cyber glove. Right, right. Which has like an engagement ring on it, right? So like within the narrative of the song, like he did put a ring on it. But, you know, she's not just holding up the engagement ring. It's like set within this glove. So I'm curious, like how does that image complicate her position as like a straight woman who is kind of settling into engagement and ultimately marriage, you know, which is like a very, it's like a kind of traditional role, but she's using this like very non-traditional kind of like futuristic image in tandem with it. What's going on there? How does, how does that image deepen or, or complicate straight womanhood? Yeah. I mean, to me, the central tension within Beyonce's performance of herself is her need to be commanding, you know, in many different ways. And then her desire to also be vulnerable, which I think reflect different cultural influences or cultural paths she wants to take, particularly at the point when Single Ladies comes out, because that was the Sasha Fierce project, which she was still very interested in old-fashioned pop stardom. I mean, she was talking in interviews about, like, Barbara Streisand is my idol. I want to have huge ballads. And then there's this other side of her, though, which emerges as more important as time goes on, which is like, I own my own authority, and my own authority is connected to my blackness and my connection to black culture and how I perceive of womanhood within that space. So there's this tension, you know. But I'm just wondering if if we think about futurism through a you know Afrofuturist lens, and how that connects to this other this other lineage she's connecting, which is with, which is sort of the more Hollywood femininity. I don't know how she does it. Like she does seem to make the most culturally conservative values in terms of gender and sexuality and femininity seem revolutionary. <laughs> but that's partly because we have to be intersectional about this. Like there's a different narrative and there's a different history for black Americans around things like marriage. So totally. this, you know, I think when single ladies came out, it was hard for someone like myself, you know, a white person to necessarily hear that as the primary thing. But, you know, 
the goal of marriage and keeping a marriage together, which, you know, she makes this explicit on Lemonade, has huge ramifications for, for the culture and the, and the difficulties of doing that. So maybe this is not so much a, it is a cyborg glove, but maybe it's also armor, a form of armor. I feel like she doesn't necessarily like seize that for herself until single ladies. I think that makes a lot of sense. She starts to talk back to to the the conventional narrative of how she should be a star. Yeah, and she borrows a line from Toy Story in this moment, right? <laughs> she sings like to infinity and beyond in single ladies <laughs> right, to like describe right. like her love. Do you do you think that that's like maybe a gesture towards like a working through an awareness of her own status is like a both a commodity and a subject. It'd be interesting to find out if she even wrote that line. I mean, the other thing we have to think about with Beyonce is she's a collaborative artist and she's more of a producer in some ways. I mean, as a vocalist, she's all her, but you know, in the writing process and the creation process, it's it's she's always on a team. And was that moment a little bit of for her audience nodding at a familiar phrase that feels nostalgic to them? I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know how much we want to read into it, but on the other hand, It is inarguable that the Single Ladies video commodified her in a way that was incredibly useful to her, replicates her, and its virality greatly empowers her. It's one of those situations where I don't know if her agency even matters in that case. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) just because of what it did. But, you know, one more thing I wanted to say is that we have to also remember Missy Elliott and think about, because you brought up the the kind of cyborgian imagery of Destiny's Child. I think, you know, Missy was another a really huge influence on not just the sounds, Missy and Timbaland, but the imagery that moves forward into this era. And Missy always was someone who felt very science fiction in a sense. I'm really glad Anne brought up Missy Elliott because the videos she made with Hype Williams in the 90s are some of the most creative and indelible of the whole era. There's her video for The Rain, Supa Dupa Fly, where she dances in a patent leather blow-up suit in front of a fisheye lens. The image is a kind of dare to all the industry people who told Missy she was too big to succeed as a solo artist. It's like she's saying, I'll make myself look even bigger and I'll look fabulous while I do it. She's also wearing a combination rhinestone studded helmet and pair of sunglasses in that shot, which, while not necessarily a cybernetic device, makes her look like she's from far, far in the future. There's also the iconic video for She's a Bitch, which finds Missy in a pair of huge futuristic sunglasses a flowing patent leather trench coat, and a pair of gloves that look like an ancestor to Beyonce's cyber glove. If that sounds a little like a costume from The Matrix, it's probably because both Williams and the Wachowskis were drawing on the same cyber goth and fetish club looks of the time. Those styles emphasize the porosity and malleability of the human body, treating it not as something static and sacrosanct, but as something that can be played with and tweaked on a whim. She was someone who always seemed like very much in control of that kind of like image that she put forth. I always thought about with Missy, there was a kind of impenetrability as well. Mm-hmm. You know, even the famous backward talking vocal is like consciously adopting something incomprehensible as a form of power, empowerment, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because... There's a way in which becoming a robot or becoming cyborg is a way of weaponizing yourself, your very being, and and that can be a form of protest at times as well. We have to talk about 
Janelle Monet in this context, <laughs> right? Because like <laughs> yeah. she is someone who's constructed like a whole universe in which she plays an android, not a not a cyborg. I think she's like very clear on that distinction. Yeah. Um, Cindy Mayweather is like very much an android. Yeah. But throughout kind of most of, of her work, there is this like movement from playing an android as like a disempowered figure, like someone engineered to like do labor of some kind or like an oppressed subject to kind of like seeking freedom through connection with other androids or like yes. escaping like the superstructure. Yeah. How does that narrative kind of tie into these like latent themes of, of queerness that run through her work, do you think? I did an early interview with her and the Wonderland crew went down to uh, the house in Atlanta where they were living. And I remember when I walked into the house, it was this incredible scene of like, I don't know, it was like an art commune, right? But the there was a, like a front foyer and there were all these books. I remember seeing Greg Tate's books and other really interesting uh, books of like black pop- popular culture theory and stuff. But there was also a TV that was running uh, Clockwork Orange on a loop. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. I think that Janelle and her collaborators have always been thinking about a wide web of popular culture connections. And queerness is a huge part of that. And her own identity is a huge part of that. But it's always more than one thing, you know. And what you mentioned about the android as a laborer is important. And Janelle talked a lot about her uniform that she wore in her early years, the black and white kind of suit she wore as a a way of honoring her parents, you know, who had uh, jobs that they, I think her dad had a job where he had to wear a uniform. You could also, though, say, well, the uniform that she wore specifically was very classic you know, butch style, right? So it's a different kind of uniform. I don't, I don't know how you can even separate those things in, in what she does, you know. But there's, but there's definitely a thread about queerness as a threat and an endangered identity at the same time. And I'm thinking about the tightrope video that takes place like in a hospital, you know, and mm-hmm. she's going to be experimented on. And, and you know, you can think about the experiments that have happened on black bodies in this culture, but you also think about the medicalization of sexuality. Both of those things are present. Totally. And then we finally get the incredible hyper-organic beautiful flowering of the pink video in which she and her dancers become giant vaginas that are sort of these like tropical plant (laughs) the creatures which takes us to a whole other realm of like fantastic form yes totally because within the narrative of dirty computer they're all androids right donning these super organic bioforms as yes. clothing which is like an interesting yeah. tension right because you don't yeah. i don't know you don't necessarily think of androids as like having vaginas unless they're constructed for you know right like sex work basically right no totally but the idea that androids could have very not only experience pleasure and desire but um that that could be the primary force in their lives that you know this is like takes me back to my favorite movies of all time, The Matrix and also Blade Runner. The Matrix is about, you know, AI and like cyberspace. But I always have the tears of Rutger Hauer's character (laughs) in my mind. Like, 
and and uh, thinking about how the expression of emotion by beings whom the dominant culture don't consider fully human is such an important aspect of resistance. I love when science fiction and science fiction pop takes us into those places. And I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'm so grateful that <laughs> you were able to join me today and that we were able to talk robots. As I was thinking about talking with you today, Sasha, I was doing some reading and um, came back to the quote from Jose Esteban Munoz that's so important. The future is queerness's domain. And I love that I love the way uh, that Jose Munoz articulated queer space as a space of, in, you know, of of experimentation, innovation, alienation, resolution, utopianism, and 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 the future. So I think uh, I think that's where robots are taking us in pop. <laughs> Hopefully, awesome. That's where we should yes. all want to go <laughs> <laughs> towards the future of gay robots. Yay. Love it. <laughs> Excellent. That was Ann Powers, NPR music critic and the author of Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. The concept of the robot or cyborg challenges dominant thinking about what bodies are and what they're for, much in the same way that gender variation and non-normative sexualities do. Artificial bodies can be modular or porous, jacked into information streams, able to swap out parts at will. Turning yourself into an android unplugs you somewhat from the gendered order of things. It can be a reflection on the way that power launders itself through the laboring body. It can also open up a space to dream outside power. What if your body didn't end with your nerve endings, but flowed out into the informational spheres that surround it? What could you do if you thought of embodiment in the most expansive way possible? As a node on a network, not a sealed container, but something in flux, always open, and always moving. Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Glean playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shatter and Gleam on Apple Podcasts, the SXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shatter and Gleam is a SiriusXM production. SiriusXM Podcasts.